Welcome to the Principles of Performance podcast, where we discuss how to optimize your health, fitness, and performance. Drawing on decades of experience of working as coaches, consultants, and trainers to top performers, athletes, and teens from professional sports to top universities to the U.S. military, Eric Degatti and Mike Perry discuss topics and strategies of how to perform at your highest level and be your very best. Join us and our friends and colleagues who are leaders in the fitness and performance industry as we investigate and challenge the most popular training, nutrition, lifestyle, and recovery protocols. And away we go. Here we are with episode number 26 of the Principles of Performance podcast. I am your host, Eric Degatti, along with my friend and co-host, Mike Perry. Michael, how are you doing today? I'm well. I got a Michael this morning. Usually when I get a Michael, I feel like I'm in trouble, but I'm doing yes. well, Eric. How are you? How are you today, bud? That's just to keep you in line for the rest of the interview. <laughs> That's All right. Uh, doing great. We lucked out. Another great uh, guest that we have here. We have Dr. Jeremy Lenicky. Uh, I came across Dr. Lenicky's work when he was a guest on uh, Peter Atia's uh, podcast. Uh, and he's got some pretty amazing credentials. They include a master's degree in nutrition and exercise science from Southeast Missouri State University, as well as a PhD in exercise uh, physiology from University of Oklahoma. He's now the director of the Kevzer Ehrman Applied Physiology Laboratory. He's down at Ole Miss University. And his research group's primary focus is on skeletal muscle adaptations to exercise with and without the application of blood flow restriction training, or BFR. And that's what we're going to be talking a whole bunch about today. Uh, he's a fellow of the American College of Sports Medicine and a member of the American Physiological Society. He's also authored numerous peer-reviewed articles and currently serves as the editorial board for Sports Medicine, Medicines and Science and Sports and Exercise, PLOS One, Peer J, and the Journal of Trainology. Jeremy, welcome to the Principles of Performance. Hey, thanks for having me on. It's good to see you guys. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on. So let's let's go right into this whole BFR thing and talk about blood uh, blood flow restriction training and can we start with just what a basic definition of what that even is for the listeners who aren't familiar? Yeah, essentially we're placing a cuff at the top of the limb. Uh, so in this case, it's the top of the arm or the top of the leg. Uh, and you're inflating it to a pressure that restricts blood flow, but doesn't completely cut it off. So blood flow is going into the limb. There's just not a lot of blood flow going out of the limb. Um, and when this is combined with uh kind of low force contractions, so low intensity exercise, low loads, uh, we typically see some beneficial adaptations to the muscle. Now, how did you get originally introduced to, to BFR? Because you've done a lot of work with it. So how did you come across it and get introduced to it? Yeah, I, the, the first time was probably around 2007. Uh, I was an undergrad. I was you know, just getting ready to finish up, looking for internships. Um, and I was kind of really interested in, in trying to get into doing research. So I was reading the scientific literature uh, and the first time I came across it, I read about it, uh, but I just kind of assumed that I just didn't have any idea what I was reading because you know, you read it, it's like, oh, they're, they restricted blood flow, something good happened. I'm like, I, I just must not understand what I'm reading. Um, so I went to Illinois for my internship and up there uh, in one of the gyms, you know, I came across uh, Lane Norton, Gabe Wilson, some of those guys. 
Uh, and they were also talking about blood flow restriction. So I was like, well, you know, maybe I was reading that correctly. So then I just started kind of going through the literature and reading more and more and more about it. And then ultimately started doing research on it in 2008. But that's kind of how it started, uh, reading about it, but kind of not sure if I was reading it correctly. Uh, and then kind of getting really fascinated with it. So, sounds like us reading most research, Mike. Um, but so <laughs> exactly. a little bit of history, if you can give us a little bit of history on BFR and like, who was this originally intended for uh, and, and, and who kind of was the, 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 the benefactor of, of the, of the initial work with this? Yeah, I, I think the, you know, legend has it and it is very much a legend, you know, uh, Sato is probably the guy from Japan who made it the most popular. You know, he's got a, uh, quite a story about how he came across using it for his own rehabilitation um, and, you know, did a lot of trial and error, regardless of whether how much of the story is true or false. I think it's I think it's fair to say that, you know, he did make it kind of popular. You know, he popularized his own device, which is the Katsu Master. Uh, that was kind of one of the original devices. Um, I'd say the the first time it ever showed up in the literature uh, for how we use it. And I, I try to add these caveats because, you know, it, once I start saying, you know, Shinohara was one of the first papers that used blood flow restriction, you know, you'll have people who will come and say, well, you know, what about these other studies that apply to cuff during exercise? Um, but they were doing it, you know, for other mechanistic purposes, for, for the purposes of, you know, increasing muscle size and strength with low loads and low intensities. The first published paper was Shinohara in 1998, as far as I know. Um, so it, it's hard to say who it was, you know, how, who it was designed for. I think Sato, if you believe some of what he says, um, you know, he wanted to, he was kind of interested in bodybuilding, was kind of looking at different ways to do things. Um, but I, I think whatever the reasons are, I, I think it became pretty clear that, you know, this might be a pretty important tool for rehabilitation, not to say that other people can't use it. Uh, not to say that it couldn't be useful for just everyday individuals, uh, but I think it's it's pretty clear that if it can do some of these things that we say it does, then you know that's got a big upside in the rehabilitation side. Very cool. So so while we're on the topic of of rehab, are there any certain types of injuries or pathologies that seem to respond really really well to BFR? Um, yeah, I. I'll answer this very surface level. Um, I, I, I try to be very transparent that I, I'm not a clinician. Uh, and as I said earlier, I don't play one on the internet either. Um, you know, I, I think the way that, you know, I always try to try to represent this when I'm talking to people who are clinicians is I try and just say, look, this is, I, I study normal, healthy individuals, how to best apply it, you know, how we think it might be working, what are some methodologies behind it, and then they can use that uh, however they see fit with their clinical expertise. I will say that there, there is some literature uh, with post-ACL surgery uh, where it, it seems like it might have some benefit there uh, where maybe you can't load very heavy. Uh, there's some, you know, patellar pain patients that, you know, there might be some utility there, maybe some Achilles injuries. So it's been used in a, in a lot of different areas. Uh, but I, I think it's it's going to come down to, you know, what that clinician kind of thinks for their patient and how best they can utilize it. 
So is one of the big takeaways that we can get more work done with a greater efficiency, like create a greater physiological load without that. And I, and I uh, dare say that orthopedic cost. And I, and I say that because I know coach Mike Boyle posted something about this, that, uh, that got a lot of uh, backfire from some of the pain science people, but basically can we get more work done without putting stress or risk at the joints? Um, yeah, I think that's fair. I, I think you can certainly say without having to load like you normally would, you can get, you know, similar aspects depending on what we're talking about. You know, I, I think with muscle adaptation, so muscle growth, some of the vascular changes, um, I think you're going to see a, a lot with blood flow restriction with low loads. You'll also get a little bit stronger, uh, but not to the same extent as high load exercise, but you will get stronger. Um, I think one of the things that's kind of starting to come out in the past couple of years um, is there could also be some changes at the tendon level. Uh, I think for a long time, it was thought that, hey, you know, maybe you actually, that, that maybe that's one of the things that blood flow attrition doesn't do very well. Maybe you need, you know, quite a bit of load for, to augment the tendon. Some recent data suggests that maybe that's not the case. Um, I, I would say that, you know, there's not a lot of work done on that. So we need a lot more. Uh, but I think that, you know, it, it might have some benefit there as well. But yeah, certainly you're getting a, a, a big bang for without a high load. I think that's fair to say. So now let's, let's, let's flip it the other way. So what are some of the potential risks of BFR? So I was even just talking with uh, one of my clients, cause he saw a Lane Norton post that he just recently had about blood flow restriction. He's like, it seems kind of dangerous, like cutting off blood flow to areas. So are there any specific risks or are there are specific uh, populations that there's contraindications where they, you wouldn't want to use BFR with them? Yeah, I think with respect to safety, the way that I like to think about it is because that was kind of my first thought too. I think it's most people's first thought when you first hear it, it's like, <laughs> wait a second, uh, what what are we talking about? You're, you're restricting blood flow. Um, I thought blood flow was good. Um, so I think the way to think about it is, you know, when we apply blood flow restriction, it's a very acute stimulus. So we're applying it for minutes um, and we're not cutting off blood flow completely, right? So we're, we're restricting blood flow partially for minutes, not for hours. Certainly, if we were to apply blood flow restriction for days, it's hard for me to imagine that there wouldn't be something bad that would happen. Uh, so I think it's, I think it's, it, it, we have to start with that. It's a very acute stimulus. It's partial restriction. So blood flow is going into the limb. Um, but I think to your point, we have to think about the safety aspects. So I think two of the concerns that people typically have are related to blood clots and related to muscle damage. So I think the way to think about this is not does it have risk. It certainly does. Exercise itself has risk. Uh, but I think the point is, is how much does it increase your risk? So when we look at normal, healthy individuals, or even some of the clinical populations, it doesn't appear to increase your risk for either one of those things. That doesn't mean that there's not some population out there that would do this and wouldn't have something happen. You know, it's very possible. But I, I think when we look at the, the, the literature, it doesn't seem like it's increasing your risk that much. There's still a risk, um, but I think we have to think about how we're applying that, uh, and how long we're applying it, and what the what the pressure is. And but but certainly, I, I think what populations would you want to be uh, 
kind of cautious with, I would say, do you have some sort of condition where you have an elevated risk for blood clot? Uh, that's not to say that you couldn't use blood flow restriction, but maybe you need to be a little bit more vigilant. Um, do you have the sickle cell trait? You know, th there's no literature that suggests that you couldn't do that safely that I'm aware of, but maybe you'd be a, you're a little bit cautious. You know, so I, I think if you have some sort of risk related to that, or if you have kind of a condition where maybe you're going to have uh, maybe your cardiovascular response uh, responds a little bit strong to like a metabolic buildup. You know, there, there, there was some suggestion, uh, Marty Springer wrote a paper about that, where, you know, there, there are some people who are very sensitive to that and their blood pressure response uh, changes much more rapidly than a normal individual. So again, not to say that you couldn't use it, but those are populations where maybe you want to be working with somebody who really knows what they're doing, who can monitor it. So you can know whether or not it's going to be a concern. Uh, but I think for most people, I think it's uh, it's going to have a very similar safety profile as regular exercise. Awesome. And and just to clarify, since Mike works with a lot of MMA fighters and pro fighters, when he means blood flow restriction, he doesn't mean a chokehold, Mike. Like when you turn blue, that's that's definitely a risk factor. Um, yeah, well, that, that's we we want to cut off all blood flow in <laughs> MMA when we're trying <laughs> to choke someone out. So it's a little different for sure. So we don't want to leave any. Uh, anything moving there but yeah so that you're right that's a the good good thing you put that in there eric for sure <laughs> absolutely um so now uh the the bigger risk factor i would think would be in the hands of the practitioner right and so you don't want just anybody buying a, a set of cups off the internet and then starting to apply it to to you know athletes and clients and so forth so what are some of the those considerations in terms of like what qualifications or what what are some of the things you would want to have someone be able to have in their their toolkit before they go out and start practicing BFR? Yeah, I mean this is a this is a tough one because um, I I think it really depends on who you are and who you're working with. So if you're just interested in applying it to yourself and you don't have any big risk factors. You know, I, I think my recommendation for you would be completely different than if you're someone who's applying it to a client. To, to me, and, and maybe you, you disagree, but to me, those are two different situations. Um, I think if you are, are working with a client or you're working with um, someone where you're trying to apply to someone else, I, I think you should, uh, you know, there's, a, there's quite a different, there's, there, there's programs out there where you can get certified. You know, it's not to say that, you couldn't use blood flow restriction without that. Uh, but I think, you know, some of the things you have to keep in mind when you're applying the stimulus is what pressure am I applying? Um, how important is it that I know the pressure? You know, if you're working with a clinical population, it's probably pretty important. If you're just an everyday person who is just trying to kind of experiment and, and, and try to keep training kind of interesting, um, it's still important, but probably not as important as someone who's dealing with an injury. But, um, you know, what pressure should it be? What size of the cup are we using? Are we even using a cup or are we using some sort of practical wrap? Um, if you're using that, then, you know, you have a, it's, it's much more practical. To, it's the, to be able to apply it is easier, but to know what pressure you're applying becomes much more difficult. So I, I've totally kind of boggled my response to this, but I think it, I think it depends upon who you're dealing with. So, if you're dealing with a client, you know, 
what cup size am I using? What pressure am I am I going to be applying to that? How do I make it relative? Um, and you know, how do I know those things? Well, you know, you have different cups or different people who have these businesses that have certifications. I don't know how good any of them are. I'm sure they're fine. Uh, I know Johnny Owens. He has kind of his certification. I know Johnny. I, I think he's a good guy. I know uh, there's a couple other, the, the blood flow restriction pro guys. I think they're pretty good. Um, is it a requirement? I, I just think it depends upon who you're, how you're using it and who you're applying it to. So uh, maybe you can help me ask a little bit better questions because I, I just kind of screwed all that up. No, no, not at all. And and I guess just the concern is, is that someone hears this or sees a post on, on social media and then they run out and they're starting to strap this to their clients without having the, the skill set to know when, where, and why, and, and what they're looking for. And like you said, if they're not having gauges and now they're doing anything from using cuffs or just going out and buying, you know, voodoo straps and, and starting to cut stuff off without knowing, okay, well, here's when, where, how, why, and, and how much. So I think that's important. Yeah. And I, I think if I was going to apply it to someone else um, and it, it was a business of mine, I think I'd want to know what pressure I'm applying. Um, there's a variety of ways that you can do that. Uh, there are cuffs that, that you know, well, can, can tell you the pressure that you're applying. You might be able to use uh, kind of a Doppler probe or, or some other way to estimate the pressure. Uh, but at least you have some idea um of what pressure you're applying i think the key point though is it's gonna a lot of it's gonna depend on what size of the cuff that you're using if it's a if it's a wider cuff so one that is more traditional with blood pressure the the pressure is going to have to be lower um, at all pressures because it takes less pressure to cut off blood flow with a wide cuff if it's a narrow cuff then the pressure is going to be higher just in general because it's going to take it's going to take a higher pressure to restrict blood flow um, if you set a pressure that's relative to the cuff, in other words, if you have a Doppler probe, like a handheld probe that can detect a pulse, or you have something that can detect a pulse, all you have to do is take whatever cuff that you're going to use and just slowly inflate the pressure until you get to, uh, to the point where there is no flow, so you don't hear a pulse. And then you know that's the arterial occlusion pressure, and you can take a percentage of that. So in our case, let's say it's, because math is not my strong point, Let's just say we, we inflate it up to 100 millimeters of mercury and, and we don't have any flow whatsoever. That's the lowest pressure where there is no flow. So there's no pulse. We would just take 40% uh, of that or 80%, whatever. Um, and then you apply that and you know that you are you always have arterial inflow going into the muscle, if that makes sense. Absolutely. So, you know, I think, you know, what we're saying here is... Um, Listen, if you are going to get interested in blood flow training, spend some time using it on yourself, get acclimated to it, have that hands-on experience. Don't just buy it and start throwing it on the arms of your patients and clients. Like have a little bit of skin in the game at first. And, and it's kind of the same thing when we, you know, when we design programs, we talk about program design in our course. It's like, listen, you can't just start throwing in all of these, you know, random sort of things into your program and expect it to go well, especially if you haven't, if you haven't done it. Like I hear people saying, oh, I do a Tabata, you know, this and that. And I'm like, do you even know what that is, first of all? And then at the same time, do you know how hard that is and what that actually feels like? Because you wouldn't be prescribing these things if you actually knew 
how it feels. So I think a big part of it is just getting that hands-on experience. But, you know, you started to mention a, a few different names and some people that, um, you know, have courses. Uh, are there any brands of, of blood flow restriction equipment that you recommend or that you found to be the most user-friendly or reliable? And if you can't mention, you know, names because of for whatever reasons, we totally get it. But are there certain key things to look at when it comes to purchasing um, a, a BFR unit? Yeah, I, I, I've used uh, a few different types um, and I've had people send me some things. I, I think some of them are getting pretty good, um, you know, with being able to detect the pressure. And then that does all the things that I just talked about on its own. So I don't, you know, there are companies that have stuff like that. I don't necessarily know all of them by name. Uh, but yeah, I think, you know, especially if you're dealing with clients, you know, if I'm buying a cuff, is it going to be able to tell me what pressure I need to apply? Some of them have that built into the actual cuff. So that's pretty cool. Uh, there's some other ones that have, kind of play on the idea of practical blood flow restriction. That's something that we dabble in. We've been dabbling in for probably a decade now is for those people who don't have the money for expensive equipment. Uh, you know, but that has major limitations. But there are some 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 of those devices where they build it into actual the clothing itself, which is kind of cool. But I, but but for me, I, I would say if I was going to purchase it to apply it to someone else, I'd want to have a cuff system that uh, was able to tell me what pressure I'm actually applying. Uh, that way, I you know I can try and apply it in the safest way possible. So for me, I in the upper body, I kind of like a more narrow cuff. Um, you know. The issue with the, using a narrow cuff in the lower body is that you're never going to be able to really know what pressure you're applying because we can't get the pressure high enough to cut off blood flow. So in the lower body, you're going to have to go with a little bit of a wider cuff, wider cuff, meaning 10 centimeters, 12 centimeters wide, uh, a five centimeter cuff for most people, you're not going to be able to cut off flow, but you will be in the upper body. So I guess the, the characteristic would be, does the device that I'm purchasing is it able to quantify the pressure that I'm applying? Uh, that would be the number one thing I'd be looking for. Very cool. So uh, doing my homework, getting ready for the show, I saw that you had a little experience in, in bodybuilding yourself, Jeremy. And so let's talk about uh, BFR and potential benefits for hypertrophy and muscle building and kind of how that would find its way into a program, kind of what the uh, protocol would look like uh, if I was going to integrate this into a traditional muscle building program. Yeah. Um, and I think this is, you know, one of the areas where it, it's, it, it's going to be pretty equal to, to high load exercise. So with bodybuilding, there is no performance aspect. It's just all about muscle growth. Uh, so when we look at the literature, uh, muscle growth increases with blood flow restricted exercise, and it's almost always equivalent to that of of high load exercise, no matter how you want to look at it. You want to look at the uh, fiber level, you want to look at uh, MRI, CT, ultrasound, it doesn't matter. The growth is almost always equivalent to that of traditional high load exercise. So um, with that in mind, that opens the door uh, for bodybuilders because you could Almost, if you really wanted to, I don't know if anybody who does this, you could train exclusively with blood flow restricted exercise uh, because the, the the response is going to be very similar to that of high load exercise. Now, that's not how I would use it. Um, 
I would probably have, you know, if I'm training twice a week, you know, I would have it to where, you know, maybe half of the week you're training traditionally. Uh, the other half of the week, maybe you're training the low, lower lows in combination with blood flow restriction. That's one way that you can use it. Another way that that's often been utilized is, you know, maybe people who bodybuilders who still like to include heavy squats, deadlifts, things like that. Uh, maybe you finish off that workout with maybe some knee extensions or legs or leg curls with blood flow restriction. So a lot of people have have utilized that or same thing with upper body exercise following bench press. Um, now, one of the things I'd say with that is, you know, the muscle can only respond so much within a given training session. So if you have absolutely obliterated your 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 legs and let's say you've done so many different exercises for your quadriceps and then you say hey you know i'm gonna i want to finish off with doing leg extensions with blood flow restriction um that's fine uh but at some point you're probably not adding anything more to the anabolic response you might just be delaying your recovery um so i think you'd have to keep in you know how much work have i already done for this muscle group um the other way you could utilize it is, you know, if, you know, you've been training for a period of time, you, you might have some sort of injury uh, where you can't train heavy, you can't train how you want to train. Uh, so you could use blood flow restriction uh, during that period of time to get you back to training how you prefer. Uh, so there's lots of different ways that you could, you could utilize it. I think the, the, the big point would, would be to keep in mind how much have I already trained this muscle group today? Because that's going to dictate how much more I can get out of it, um, if that makes sense. Um, but I think that um, with muscle growth, you'd have you'd have no worries. You could use it how you know so many different ways. Strength, you know, if you're a powerlifter, that's going to be slightly different. You could still utilize it, but you'd have to be a little bit more careful. So I have tons and tons of questions off of, of what you're going on here. So let's start with uh, kind of working backwards. And in terms of how taxing it may be uh, in factoring into recovery when you're when you're looking at overall load or volume uh, to say, like, we know if we we program more eccentrics, there's going to be a lot more soreness and, and recovery time required for that. So we might uh, damper how much volume of, of, of that we put in. Where does BFR fit in? into that scheme of things in terms of how taxing it may be physiologically when I am trying to factor volume over, over a workout or over a, a period of a week? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, I think one of the things that seems to be clear is that, um, well, clear is not a fair word. Uh, one of the things that's been seen repeatedly is when you do low load exercise with blood flow restriction, um, especially if you haven't done it before, you're going to be very sore, um, very sore. Now, the the issue is, is that if you look at the fiber level, it's the fiber seems to be structurally intact. So it's not clear on what that soreness, what that DOMS is actually uh, in response to. Um, but I, I, I'd say I, I, I'm going to answer this differently today than I would 10 years ago. Uh, because I, when I used to talk about it, I would say, um, you know, it, it's clearly easier to train with low loads in combination with blood flow friction than high load exercise. Um, and the recovery is clearly better. Um, I still think there's something to that, but I think a lot of that had to be dependent upon what you're comparing it to. When you're looking at high force eccentric actions, 
Well, that might not be a fair comparison because most people aren't even doing that in the gym. Uh, you, you know, that stuff that's coming from the muscle damage literature, which is entirely different. But I, I would say that there, there's some reason to believe that you might be able to recover from blood flow restriction faster uh, than high load exercise. I don't know if it's just the lack of load, um, but I, you're going to have to, you're going to have to figure in the soreness um, and how much of that you can handle. Uh, because initially, and it will become less with repeated bouts, uh, so it's the same thing with high-load exercise, uh, but initially, you're going to be pretty sore, uh, but there are studies that that do do blood flow restriction multiple times per day, multiple days per week, um, and I don't know that you could do that with high-load exercise, so there is some evidence, there is some reason to believe that the recovery is a little bit better, um, but, and I, that's probably the loading, but you know you, you will be sore. I, I I think that should be clear because some people might hear, oh, the recovery is better, and then I go off and do this, and then they're sore as hell, um, and then they're kind of like, wait a second, I I thought this was going to be much you know easier to recover from, if that makes any sense. Total sense. And so now that that's my next question is is in terms of. Uh, loading, you know, uh, one of the things that has changed quite a bit over time since when I was in school, it was these pretty uh, restricted parameters in terms of where hypertrophy happens of, you know, you had this under, you know, six and under was strength and eight to 12 was hypertrophy. And then anything above that was muscular endurance. And now we're starting to see where there's hypertrophy happening from three to 30, you know, Andy Galpin has said. So, what end of the continuum is this better served for? Is this better served for those higher rep sets, those higher uh, and, and lighter loads? Yeah, I, I think the, you know, if you're going to use blood flow restriction, and I think that's a, a, a good point, that the benefits are observed with in combination with low load exercise or low intensity exercise. So anywhere between 20 and 30% of your 1RM, uh, we've gone as low as 15%. Um, I probably wouldn't recommend that, but you know, I think 30% 1RM is probably going to, uh, I don't know if that's a sweet spot, but we, we definitely see repeatable adaptations there. I think if you start getting into the high loads, so 60 and 70% of 1RM, if you add blood flow restriction on top of that, you're not getting anything extra. So I think if you're going to use it, you know, then use it with low loads uh, because all you're going to get at high loads is the same response, but with more discomfort. So um, it makes no sense to me to apply blood flow restriction with, with high loads based on the data that I've seen so far. How's that for a, a selling point for exercise, Mike? Same workout <laughs> just know. makes you feel way worse. Hey, everybody, a quick break in the action here. Hope you're enjoying the show and we appreciate you listening. We're working hard to bring you the highest quality content and best guests every single week. So if you could do us a big favor and go and like and subscribe to the show on whatever platform you get your podcasts on, it would be greatly appreciated. Be sure to listen at the end of the show also to find out where you can find out more information about our courses, as well as a special discount code for all our listeners. Thanks again, and let's get back to the show. Um, so, all right, so, uh, my, so my next question is most of the stuff that I have seen has been congruent. And this is also some stuff I've seen with the higher rep 
uh, low load type work is it generally is is slanted towards more like single joint simple exercises leg extensions bicep curls that sort of thing is there are certain exercises and movement patterns that are more conducive to to bfr and other ones probably that aren't going to translate as well yeah i i think it, you know a lot of that's because of how we, the of the exercises that we utilize in research um and i think it's it also stems from the fact that that's where we're applying the restriction. So we're applying the restriction on top of the, the, the leg or top of the arm. And it's easier to do that with single joint movements. Uh, now, there are benefits observed um, or documented benefits to doing something like the bench press or the squat. That has been observed. Um, the it's not quite as much data. Um, you, you'd obviously always want to see more of that, uh, but you could utilize this for many different types of exercises. Now, what I would say, um, and there is data that, let, let's say you use the bench press. Obviously you have the restriction here. Um, so the, the only thing that's being restricted is the arm, but there is some data that suggests that it can actually increase muscle size of the chest as well even though it's not directly under restriction. Now, how would that work? I don't have a clue. Um, I think one of, one of the ways that we typically think about is, is that if you fatigue the triceps, maybe the chest has to pick up the load. Um, I don't know if that's true. That's something we say a lot though. Um, and that's one explanation. Now, if I was a normal, healthy individual who wanted to utilize this, um, if I was doing the bench press, I would probably superset it with an exercise that directly is underneath the cuff. So maybe you do the bench press with maybe tricep extensions or shoulder press with tricep extensions or, you know, some sort of back movement with a bicep curl or something like that. Um, I think that would give you a pretty good workout. Uh, but you're right. Most of the literature um, and most of the recommendations are for single joints, but it has been used successfully with more compound movements as well. Now, last question on on kind of protocols with this is um, Mike's going to talk about recovery more in a holistic manner, but uh, more recovery uh, between sets uh, that sometimes is dictated by by load. Obviously, the heavier you go, the more rest period we need, but also by the neurological uh, implications that are that are there that you need more time uh, to recover from the, the neurological stress. So. What kind of connection is there there in terms of any kind of neurological connections that you found, um, as well as how that may impact rest periods in between here? Um, yeah, I, I think as far as recovery between sets, it's it's very minimal. Um, you're going to get some recovery, but I, I think that when you start looking at uh, some of those metabolites that build up, you know, during normal exercise, those are being flushed out. Um, when you have a rest period of blood flow restriction, they are not being flushed out. They're being basically largely maintained there. So your recovery is heavily impacted uh, um, in a negative way in the exercise session. Um, and that's one of the benefits that we actually think uh, behind how it occurs, because you're going to have to recruit more fibers for that next set to even execute the movement. Uh, so from a recovery standpoint, while blood flow restriction is on, it's very negative. Um, it's going to negatively impact your ability to do exercise. And it's we, we have people who get to the fourth set of exercise where they might be able to do two repetitions with 30% of their uh, 
one RM at the very beginning, at least. Um, so I think the recovery within the, within the bout is, is you, you don't have much recovery. Um, but I think that between exercise bouts, um, you know, if, if it's just the fact that you're lifting with a lower load or lower overall stresses, which is why you're able to bounce back a little faster, I'm not sure. But the recovery in the exercise, yeah, it's not so good. Okay, so I'm sorry, Mike, I'm going to keep hijacking this because I keep coming up with questions the more uh, Jeremy gives us answers here in that. Um, what about levels of adaptation in terms of we know that we need progressive overload if we're, you know, lifting weights or, or uh, working against resistance? Is there an adaptation where we might need to increase the level of occlusion to get the same result that people will have some level of adaptation to the to the restriction itself? Um, that's a good question. I, I think it depends upon what you're trying to do. Um, if, if it was there are studies that progress the pressure. Um, in other words, they maybe they start off with a low pressure and they incrementally increase it. Um, and they use that as a as a method for um, trying to induce further adaptation. Um, if it was me, I would say I would look at my repetitions. And then once I start getting out of this repetition range, I start doing more and more, I would increase the load. Because I think load is, is you know, keeping it low, relatively speaking, but I think load is pretty important to progress. Um, now, as far as the pressure, you know, if you repeatedly do this type of exercise, one of the things that that might happen is you might have some cardiovascular changes that might lower your blood pressure. Um, so it might be worth every once in a while, every couple of months or so, is if you're if you don't have something that can detect the pressure every time, it might be worth checking it to see if maybe your arterial occlusion pressure has changed. Um, so maybe you could alter the pressure that way. As far as adaptation, I think if you're interested in muscle growth, muscle strength. I think you can get away with a wide range of pressure. So 40% AOP, so 40% of the pressure it takes to completely cut off blood flow. We've shown that to be very similar to 80% and 90%. However, vascular adaptation, so changes in resting limb blood flow, things like that, that might require a higher pressure. Um, so uh, again, we need a lot more data to be able to say this confidently, but we do have data, some data that suggests that Vascular adaptations are greater at 80% than they are at 40%. Um, and if you want to see changes that are more similar to, to traditional exercise, you need that higher pressure. So I think if you're interested in the vascular side and the muscle side, maybe you need a little bit of a higher relative pressure. If all you're interested in is muscle, then you have quite a little, you have, you know, quite the, the wiggle room. So let's shift gears. Let's talk about the connection of using uh, BFR for athletic performance, whether it be strength, power, uh, uh, endurance. Um, what have you seen in terms of any data back on, on implications with that? Yeah. Um, I, there are a lot of sports teams that utilize blood flow restriction. Um, you know, when we look at the D1 athletics in the United States, um, it, it's at every major program. Um, it's made its way into the NFL, MLB. I would say that Johnny Owens is a big reason for that. You know, not only him, but he is a big reason. Um, he's done a lot of work on 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 that side of things. You know, we have Barcelona Football Club, Manchester United. All of these guys 
or implementing and utilizing blood flow restriction at Philadelphia Eagles. Um, now, how are they using it? Uh, mostly uh, from a rehabilitation perspective. Um, and I think um, there's also some interest in the recovery. So following a workout, and that's something I'm interested in too. Uh, I don't know exactly what that means, to be honest, when they say we're going to, we, we finished the workout and then we're going to use blood flow restriction as a way to improve that recovery to the next bout. Um, I don't know how that would be working, uh, if it is working, but that is something that has been a kind of an, uh, a recent focus. Um, now, why are they using it for rehabilitation and not as much as a direct training method? And I think a lot of it has to do with um, many of them focus on high loads, high intensity. Um, and they believe that that is the best way to approach things. And for certain sports, that might very well be the case. Um, and many of them, you know, let's talk about something like even cycling. Now, let's say you're a pro cyclist and there's some data in certain populations that maybe cycling with blood flow restriction could be beneficial. I think from their perspective is how much is the cyclist going to get from coming in and cycling at a very slow speed, even if it is with blood flow restriction. Um, or they might say, I don't want my athlete training at that slow speed. I don't want them to get any practice doing that. Um, I don't want them to take away from their actual training. So I think that's why there's a focus on when something goes wrong or maybe the recovery perspective. Um, for, for me, I, I struggle with athletic performance and resistance training just in general. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think that most people think I'm wrong about this and that's perfectly fine with me. Um, I struggle with just resistance training and athletic performance just in general about how much of a direct effect does it actually have? And part of it's because what is, what is athletic performance and how do you even document that? It's so hard to know. Um, I do think there could be something to their, maybe a, an indirect effect. In other words, when I'm, there is, there does appear to be something with resistance training and injury prevention. Uh, again, I don't know how that possibly works, but I mean, there's some pretty good evidence, uh, at least, you know, from what I can see that people who lift weights, they seem to get hurt less. So from an athletic performance perspective, um, if you're in the game longer, then that's pretty good for performance. If you can train uh, more consistently. Uh, but I, I think blood flow restriction in, in that world and high performance athletics, it probably is not going to be your sole focus uh, as a training method. Uh, now, there are certain athletes like Dwight Howard. Um, I think he was on the, on ESPN talking about the use of blood flow restriction. Uh, for him, you know, he when he got older into his career, you know, it was harder for him to recover from his training bouts. And it was, you know, potentially taking away from his performance on the court. So if he could do something that was a little bit of a lower stress um, and then recover for his actual sport, I think that's how he was utilizing it. But um, long-winded answer, I think most for athletic performance are probably using it for a re rehab or uh, trying to figure out how they might be able to implement this uh, from a recovery perspective. You know, powerlifting, could you do that? Yes. Um, you could use it as, uh, you know, maybe if you don't, 
have that mental focus that day. Maybe you can use lower lows with blood flow restriction. Um, or maybe you could have certain training cycles where you're including that. But if if that's your sole form of training is with low loads and your sport is about who can lift the heaviest, you're going to lose and it's not going to be close. Um, you have to have some sort of high loads if your sport is dictated by who can lift the heaviest, if that makes sense. No, totally. absolutely. I think I, I think one of the things that, uh, you know, sort of a, a common theme uh, throughout this conversation is, it, it, you know, it's beneficial for certain things, but it's really not good for other things. And that's really what you're saying. It seems to be really good from a rehabilitation standpoint, and it seems to be good for accessory work from a hypertrophy standpoint. But what you're saying from, a, you know, from an athletic performance, from a strength and a power, it's, it's, it's probably not a good choice. And uh, you started to kind of go down this road a little bit, but, you know, from a recovery standpoint, you know, we've got all these modalities when it comes to recovery. We've got ice, we've got heat, we've got soft tissue, we've got, you know, compression boots like Normatex, stuff like that. But it seems like what you're saying, that blood flow restriction from a general overall recovery standpoint is probably not a recommended modality. Um, so it would depend upon how you're using it. So some of these teams that are using it, they're not applying it with contraction, right? Because I think to your point, it's like, wait a second. So to recover from exercise, we're going to do more exercise. Um, and I think how the teams are using it is there, there is some data that, you know, from a rehabilitation perspective, if you just apply a cuff, and you do cycles of inflation and deflation, so very similar to ischemic preconditioning, but the pressure is lower. There could be some benefit there, uh, and I think that some of the sports teams are saying, "I wonder if doing this post training or post exercise, I wonder if we can get some sort of recovery from that." And I don't know. Uh, I, I don't want to come on here and say that that doesn't make sense. Uh, because my inability to think of how that might be working um, doesn't mean it, it doesn't do something. I, I am personally interested in that, um, about applying just BFR. Um, can that improve your ability to re return to your sport or return to training or your recoverability? I just don't know exactly how that how that would work. Not saying it doesn't, uh, but I mean, I'm interested in studying that more certainly. So a question that just came in my head is whether you're using it for performance or recovery is, have you seen anything in terms of any level of an interference effect that to say, okay, well, I don't want to do this X amount of hours or days prior to events where I'm going to need to be performing maximally, or I need to, to be able to create high level, high load contractions. No, I, I think the, the only thing I would, I would think of with that is, if you haven't used it before or consistently, and then you're going to apply it a couple of days before a meet, and then you go into the meet, like in, in this case, powerlifting or your event and you're sore, well, that, that's not very good. Um, so that would be the only thing, you know, I could think of. I, I will say that, you know, there is some interesting work being done in cycling. Um, not to say that it's been shown to be overly beneficial from a performance perspective, uh, but I think, you guys are probably aware that it's, you know, very difficult to actually quantify performance in a lab uh, using time trials. There's lots of things that go into time trials, but one of the ways that people are trying to get a, around the idea of, I don't want my athletes training at a low speed is they have their athletes do their high intensity training, but during the rest period, they apply blood flow restriction. 
And they have seen some vascular changes to that and some and some aerobic benefits to doing that. It just hasn't translated to time trial performance. Um, and there might be, you know, a thousand reasons for that. Uh, but that's one of the ways that people are trying to utilize it without having to use it with low loads or low intensities from a from a pure per performance perspective. Now, would it also be similar when we're we're looking at programming? We generally want to put our more uh, higher higher neurologically uh, the exercises that require higher neurological demand earlier in our workouts. Would this be something that would fit better later in your programming? Like you you know once you're done with your BFR, pretty much you should be done. Yeah, I mean, especially if you're someone who's interested in getting the most out of, let's say you're squatting or power clean or whatever. Yeah, I, I would start with that because once you do blood flow restricted exercise, um, you're going to be smoked. Um, and you're not going to want to do anything. If you try to squat afterwards, you know, you'd be pretty shaky, I would imagine. So, yeah, I think that's a good point. I would, I would you know, plan on that being almost the end of my workout. And then going back to something you mentioned with doing it with some of the low level work, uh, is it something that may have benefits if you're doing, say, um, you know, a lower intensity, you know, quote unquote, zone two type, but zone one or zone two type of work, could there be possibly some aerobic and cardiovascular cardiorespiratory benefits to that? <clears throat> yeah, I, I, there, there is some data that, that does suggest that, um, I, I think that's going to be very population dependent. Um, you know, you can come up with some studies that show that athletes can, can walk at slow speeds. I mean, there is this data that does exist. Um, you know, they had trained basketball players walk with blood flow restriction and, and improve aerobic capacity. Um, I just have a hard time believing that would be consistently observed. Um, it would be hard. It's hard for me to believe that someone who's an athlete could walk at a slow speed. Um, or cycle at a slow speed and, and improve aerobic capacity over what they currently have. Um, maybe I could be wrong. Maybe I'm just wrong, but that's just kind of my my hunch. But I I do think there's certain populations where maybe that could be you know beneficial. In older adults, you know, it has some aerobic capacity benefits there. Um, people who are uh, who can't do anything else, you know, maybe it's a way for them to progress their exercise ability to get back to doing kind of what they're what they like to do or more traditional type exercise um so there is there is data with low intensity aerobic exercise that improves aerobic capacity but if i had to put money down i would say you're probably going to most likely see a benefit from an aerobic perspective in people who are um, of a deconditioned state or older adults, something like that. I, it, I'm less inclined to believe that that's really going to benefit um, at, at, at low speeds, you know, high-performing athletes. Um, now, the cardiovascular changes in response to resistance exercise, um, as far as like uh, resting blood flow and things like that, and, and indirect markers of capillarization, there is data that shows that that happens and and probably people who would be trained. I, I wouldn't believe that, but I don't know that that would increase your overall, you know, systemic aerobic ability. All right. I'm going to sneak one more in Mike, and then you can start to wrap things up. So in terms of programming, is this also something that 
you would benefit from kind of periodizing and having during certain phases, or is it could be something you just pretty much can consistently do uh, throughout a, a training cycle or throughout the year. Um, so in terms of mapping it out, is there certain blocks that this would be more conducive to, or it just can be, it can fit anytime, anywhere. I think it could fit pretty much anytime you would need it. Um, it would just be, what is my goal? You know, if your, if your goal is to, you know, in, in, in some sort of training cycle or phases to be able to produce as much strength as possible, then it, it should not be your sole focus. I uh, that's clear. Uh, but I, I do think it could be used. I mean, you could you could program it in to for a period of time, you know, to keep things interesting. Uh, maybe uh, keep training fresh in your mind. Uh, you could also use it as needed. Uh, maybe you you have a certain plan for that day, uh, but for whatever reason, life happens. Your life stress or uh, some sort of nagging injury to where you, you're you're good enough to train, but not good enough to train heavy. Maybe that's a day you use it. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's fair to say it could be used in, in lots of different ways, probably whatever the phase is. Um, but you know, don't forget about what your main goal is for that for that phase. Absolutely. So, uh, Perry, I've 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 hijacked uh, Dr. Lanicky for most of this hour. So, what what uh, final questions or thoughts do you maybe have? No, it's just, uh, you know, a lot of the information. I, I love the fact that, you know, when we ask the questions uh, and you mentioned this before, it's like, you're like, I'm not really sure. So, uh, you know, we appreciate your honesty with a lot of this stuff because a lot of the time people just try to make stuff up. And, and I love the fact that you're just like, this is what we know. This is what we don't know. And this is what sort of the data suggests and the trends that we're seeing. So, you know, I, I think that's important for a lot of people to understand is, you know, someone with your knowledge, you're still going, I don't know if that's, but I'm, I'm hoping to learn that soon. So, um, you know, we, we, we do appreciate that so much because uh, it's just refreshing to hear, but so tell us what you're working on uh, now. And do you have anything coming up in the next year or any projects that you're working on? What have you, uh, what's on the horizon for you? So I had two of my students, uh, Rob Spitz and Vicky Wong. Both of them just finished up uh, two dissertations. Uh, so we're looking through that data right now. Uh, that was on blood flow restriction, uh, or it was exercise with and without blood flow restriction, um, low force contractions, high force contractions. I would say one of the things that you know is an interesting result from that is related to the cross-education effect. So I won't give away too much, but uh, we did find some very interesting results as it relates to blood flow restriction. Um, cross-education meaning if we have people train their right side, but not their left side, uh, we were able to see some sort of benefit on that opposite arm, even though it didn't exercise uh, with blood flow restriction. So we're gonna try and figure out um, what that might mean or how that might be occurring. Um, but that's pretty fascinating for us. Um, there's another dissertation that's actually starting up. Uh, we're going to start data collection on it this Saturday, actually, um, looking at kind of the cross-education effect as well. It's kind of been a, of interest the past couple of years. It actually doesn't involve blood flow restriction at all, uh, but kind of surrounding uh, the cross-education effect with high-load exercise, things like that. Um, the other study that we're going to start this semester is related to, we've done a little bit of work on this, um, on the effect of blood flow restriction on pain or your ability to sense pain. Um, for example, pressure pain threshold and things like that. So following blood flow restricted exercise, you're less sensitive to pain. Um, and that might have some rehabilitation uh, utility as well. 
that you might be able to use this. Um, you, you raise your threshold for pain before you go to therapy. So maybe you can get more out of that exercise session. So that's of interest to us. Uh, but we're going to be looking at um, some, some differing kind of pain markers this coming semester. So I'm excited about that. Um, and, you know, I, I think the, you know, the utility for me, the, the thing that I look forward to is just working with my students. So past and present, um, it's the best, kind of the best part of being in academia. So it's cool to teach undergrad. It's cool to teach grad classes. But when you work with the students in your own lab, it's a, and you help develop them and you guys are both developing ideas and bouncing ideas off of each other, it's, it's awesome because um, if, you're, if you get good students, they don't let you get away with anything. So they don't care who you are. Uh, they don't care how long you've been doing things. Um, and to be fair, that's, that's really what's needed because you can start to run into the things of, well, I've done this for a long time. It's like, so what? <laughs> You know, what would happen if we did this or what would happen if this was wrong or what would happen if you did this? So, you know, I have that every single day and I have students who, you know, every time you 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 speak, there's always some sort of comeback. So um, that's important. I don't know if that happens in every lab, but it certainly happens in mine. Um, and I think it's it's pretty good. So I've been lucky to to, to work with really good students, but I'm looking forward to to continuing that. Well, I am a huge fan of, of the work you're doing. That's why I was totally stoked when you uh, said you give us the time and, and, and I'm hoping we can circle back and, and have you again, because the, the thing that's hitting me now is realizing that in the, in the grand scheme the footprint of, of things like BFR is, is so new when you're talking about, it's only been around, you know, 20, 25 years, which is a blip in, in the scientific community and as far as what we can uh, learn and, and benefit from things like this. So I'm sure if we, we have another conversation a year, we'll have all sorts of new stuff to, to kind of go back and revisit. So I uh, want to thank you again uh, for your time and uh, want to thank everyone for listening. And this has been the Principles of Performance podcast. Thank you for listening to the Principles of Performance podcast. If you've enjoyed our content, please like and share on your social media outlets as well as subscribe and give us a review on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your preferred platform is to listen to. For more information on the Principles of Program Design courses and workshops, visit us at www.principlesofprogramdesign.com and follow us on all of the social media channels where we post new content every day. To save 10% on any PPD courses, enter the discount code PRINCIPLESPODCAST10 at checkout. If you have any questions we can answer or suggestions for the show, you can email us at info at principlesofprogramdesign.com or message us on social media. Thank you again for your support.